Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. I feel like, like getting lost in science. Do you feel like getting lost in science, Claire? Every week around this time, actually. You totally <laughs> have no idea where you are in science, do you? <laughs> I'm here. I'm at Lost in Science. Brilliant. I mean, I am lost yeah, in it, totally, but totally. I'm also very much deeply grounded in it. Totally. Um, anyway, my name is Chris, and uh, yeah, I have a story at the, this week, uh, which is a not a happy story. Um, sometimes we take like take a little critical look at science. I'm talking about some recent reports about the extent of sexual harassment reported in physics, uh, and some of the issues that. Uh, that very still very male dominated discipline has. You and are doing some real talk on your favourite science I'm, subject. I am doing some real talk. I'm turning my chair around and sitting on it backwards. You are. I am. You yeah, are. I you am. are. I'm totally. Uh, yeah. Great. Yeah. Excellent. Um, well, this week on the show, I will be having a chat to actually a native bee researcher. Kit Prendergast from Curtin University is going to be chatting all the way from Perth about native bees and why they're important, what their biodiversity is, and what we can do to make sure we um, keep that biodiversity and keep them in our gardens. Yeah, because we often think about the um, the honeybee. Like yeah, the... we often talk about bees, but, you know, that's the European bee. Exactly. Yeah, for all intents and purposes, that's an invasive species. Exactly. Yeah. 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 No one's talking about that, are they? No well, one's talking about that. You are. <laughs> well, I am. I am. I am. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Brilliant. And Stu has a story with us today. He is talking about well, ionic drive. So this is something it's kind of like a science fiction concept, but the idea of using electricity, no moving parts, to move something along. And there has been an aeroplane flown using this technology. It sounds. Hang on, what is this? Is this some sort of science fiction from Stu? Oh it, no, it's real. It's real. This thing is just. There's no like propellers or oh jets God. and this kind of stuff. It is just all done with electricity. Um, what can't electricity do? That's what we want to know. Anyway. On with the show. Yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. Now, um, I pick on physics a lot, I think, sometimes. Uh, you also embrace physics a lot and love it. But I'm not afraid to criticise it. No, no, you're not. No. That I mean, is because I, guess, I care. That is I because guess. I care. Well, yeah, okay. I don't know. I'm really, I don't know. I normally see you as a fan fanboy of physics. Yeah. Okay. Well, today we're talking about. I'm talking about a serious topic regarding physics. You are and not fanboying today. I'm not. Well, I'm not. Fan, I'm not. Yeah. Basically, it is the top. It is a serious topic. It is about sexual harassment, and physics has got issues with sexual harassment. Um, and there's been some new studies that have come out recently highlighting this, and I think it's important to talk about these things because, you know, on this show we don't just cover science itself. We talk about the culture of science and how it is done and that sort of thing. Totally. It's always good to call out the culture, especially yeah, in right. physics. I mean, women make up a very small percentage of physicists. Yeah, and this is this is looking into basically the reasons why, essentially. Mm. So this is um, this is a study that was published in the journal Physical Review, Physics Education Research. Uh, now it was a survey of four hundred fifty five female undergraduate students, and they found that seventy four percent of them, that's nearly three quarters, had experienced some form of sexual harassment. That's awful. That is shocking. That is shocking. That is shocking. Now, 
again, this is we're talking about physics here um, because I'm obsessed with physics, but it's not a problem obviously unique to physics not in, or in you know science in general. But like there was actually a report, a big big report released last year by the United States National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine that found yeah sexual harassment was pervasive across scientific disciplines. But I think that one of the reasons why I want to focus on physics is because physicists like to think that they're special and that they're somehow above the rest of society. But um, you know they had the same issues. Yes, in in some cases maybe maybe worse. Quite a lot worse. Well, actually, this is the thing. I mean, it is actually hard to tell the compare the rates of incidents because the studies are done in different ways. Um, like this was a survey, like an elective survey, um, so it's not like a poll of everyone. I mean, the the, the other one by the um, the US National Academy of Sciences that had a different methodology and came up with some different numbers. So it's hard to compare across the different studies. But yeah, it does show how um, how prevalent it is. And you can also then also look, you know, anecdotes. As, as data as well. Like there are some high-profile cases um, that have, yeah, definitely challenged the community. Now, the most publicly known name um, that has come out with this is a guy called Lawrence Krauss. Are you familiar with Lawrence Krauss? Yeah, uh, Lawrence Krauss is a is he cosmologist type dude. Yeah, that kind of, that kind of dude. Um, he was first known for a uh, book about the physics of Star Trek. Um, but, yeah, he's kind of very outspoken. He's a famous atheist. Um, he's, uh, you normally see him in, like, sceptic sort of circles. That's right. And... He's a regular on Q&A. He's got, like, right. an Australian connection. He's a regular on Q&A. And he's, uh, he's also was involved with the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, too, the people who are the people that had the doomsday clock, and they advance it, showing how close we are to destruction. Happy stuff. Anyway, um, <laughs> recently his university found that he had violated their sexual harassment policy. And this is actually an event that happened in Australia in 2016. He was, um, they had found that he had uh, grabbed a woman's breast at an event here in Australia. Um, there were other allegations against him, but he has since announced his early retirement. And so the other, other allegations have kind of just been... The investigations have been dropped because he no longer works for the university. Right. So they're kind of right. going, well, you know... Not our problem anymore. So there were some um, sexual harassment allegations made against him and then he just said, oh, actually I'm retiring. Yeah, he basically, yeah, <laughs> got out of there. God, yeah, right. So, yeah, so it just, like, uh, you know, there, like I said, there are other allegations, they're very in severity, but as does the, the sexual harassment case reported in this um, this survey. Now, um, back to the survey, now 24% of respondents had said they had dealt with unwanted sexual attention. This is like including repeatedly being asked out, unwanted or being touched without permission. Um, 51% had been subject to sexual gender harassment, which is like um, inappropriate remarks and uh, and jokes and stories and that sort of thing. But the most common form of sexual harassment reported in this survey was um, sexist gender harassment, so they call it, which is experienced by 68%. And that's basically in which women receive sexist comments or are treated differently, ignored or put down because of their gender. Again, not a surprise that this happens in physics. Particularly, again, there have been other high-profile things in this recently. There was... Um, um, a CERN physicist, that's the um, the accelerator facility in Switzerland, of course, uh, a bloke called Alessandro Strumia gave a talk in September 2018 about how he claimed how women are less suited for physics than men and that, in fact, is the men who were discriminated against by kind of equality policies. Um, they've since cut ties with him. Um, he's not a very popular man around there anymore. But... Those kind of attitudes, of course, are not unique to this one guy, and that's the kind of thing that we're talking about here. It's incredible that um, that those sorts of claims can be made in 2018. It is. It is. Um, 
and it by also, high profile scientists. Yeah, it is. Um, some of it actually though is um, apart from just pure sexism, it's the attitude of physicists that I often complain about is that they think they know everything and they go, uh, look, I can prove that sexism mm. is not real. I can do some numbers and maths and this kind of stuff. And yeah, they're not actually talking to people who really understand what's going on. They're just trying to prove their point and thinking they're smarter than everybody else, which is, yeah, one of the problems with physicists. Stop looking at me like that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but no, look, this, um, this uh, as I said, this, uh, this gender harassment was the most common form reported. Now, the, the lead author of the study, who was a physicist, Lauren Acock, she says that um, gender harassment is kind of like one of the, 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 the root causes, like because it is the one that kind of enables the other sexual harassment, these attitudes that shows how that kind of the, the, the basis for it also has a substantial impact on, on individuals. It basically affects their sense of belonging and, you know, gives an imposter phenomenon, basically showing that telling people they're not welcome in the field, which is not healthy for their careers. So it has a big impact and that's, um, and that's yeah, I guess one of the things to, to focus on. Um, and there are other things that need to be done as well, um, like real consequences for the offenders is, is probably a good thing. Um, the National Academy of Sciences in the U.S., has um, recently had a vote to rescind membership for sexual harassers. They used to have lifetime membership. So that's a start of making some sort of move like that. But, you know, someone like Lawrence Krauss, um, I was in a bookshop the other day. His books are still on the shelves. I'm sure he's making lots of money still out of his, his, uh, his work and his writing. So, yeah, I don't know how you tackle those kind of things. Um, well, on the other hand, though, he's not getting invited onto Q&A. He's not, you know, going to as many conferences as he was. Yeah. I mean, book sales is probably, yeah, as you say, they're still on the shelf. Yeah, you're totally right, yeah. But he's definitely not, um, you know, he's not putting himself out there or not getting the exposure that he used to, which is at least one good thing. Yeah. In the meantime, I think it also emphasises the, the importance of um, uh you know, showing the, that, uh, as, as I think as we try and do here in Lost in Science, you know, that um, the, some of these stereotypes, these old stereotypes, um, you know, basically providing good role models and um, trying to change, challenge some of those old-fashioned norms that are the, the base of some of this gender harassment. Um, yeah, trying to turn the culture of physics around. It, it does have a culture and, yeah, it, maybe it needs to be fixed. <laughs> There is a lot of buzz around our next guest who studies native bees, PhD researcher at Curtin University, Kit Prendergast. Welcome to Lost in Science. Hi, Claire. Thanks for having me. Tell us about native bees. What are the differences between native bees and European bees? Well, in Australia, most people, when they think of the word bee, they usually think of the European honeybee. But this is an introduced species. We actually have an estimated over 2,000 species of native bees in Australia. So an incredible diversity. And many of our native bees are actually very different from the European honeybee. Only 11 species actually live in colonies and make honey. The rest of our species don't make honey. They do forage for nectar and pollen, but they actually don't make honey, which is a surplus of nectar. They don't live in colonies. Instead, they're solitary or they live in small social groups. But the vast majority are actually solitary and they don't 
uh, rear their offspring, what they do is they forage for nectar and pollen, put it in a nest, lay the egg on the nectar and pollen, seal off the nest, and then that's the end of the mum's parental duties. And the egg hatches into a larvae and then eats the nectar and pollen and then uh, pupates and emerges out as another bee, um, an adult one. So very different life history strategies. They look very different to honeybees because there's such a diversity. You can't really say this is what a native bee looks like. Um, but we've got ones that are small, as just over two millimetres long. Then we've got ones that are bigger than honeybees. We've got ones that are black with red fuzzy heads and bottoms. We've got ones with... <laughs> black and blue bands, yeah, huge diversity. So there is an incredible amount of different types of bees all engaging in different sort of life cycles, but are they all? Well, for an animal to be a pollinator, it has to collect pollen from one species of plant and then deposit it on a female flower of the same species. And so good pollinators are ones that collect lots of pollen and then go to to flowers on a different plant, not the same plant, otherwise it's inbreeding. And so many of our native bees are actually quite good pollinators because unlike honeybees, which are quite generous, then they'll visit lots of different plant species, quite a few of our native bees are specialists and they'll only visit plants of the same species so there's no pollen going to plants that are of a completely different species and then no pollination occurs. But the ability of our native bees to be pollinators differs quite widely. Uh, Some of our native bees aren't very good pollinators because they actually swallow pollen. And because of this, they don't look very much like bees either. They've lost the fuzzy pollen-carrying hairs, so they're quite smooth and they look like wasps a little bit. But that doesn't mean that they're less important in terms of preserving them because all species really are important. So... Um, from an economic point of view, maybe they're not as valuable financially, but from an intrinsic point of view, I think they're just as valuable. And can I ask, I mean, as someone who is allergic to bee stings, do they have a similar sort of sting mechanism? The female bees can all sting except for bees in the family Stenotrichidae, which is actually really special because it comprises only 21 species that are only found in Australia. Wow. And then we've also got uh, 11 species of stingless bees, um, as their common name implies, and they can't sting either. No boy bees will be able to sting you, so you're always safe from the boy bees. (laughs) Great. And (laughs) then when it comes to all the rest of the bees, as someone that has a lot of experience being stung, (laughs) coming from an expert here, um... I can definitely say that stings from native bees are a lot less painful. So when I get stung by a honeybee, I swell up and my face looks like a marshmallow because I've been stung on the face. (laughs) And um, But with native bees, it's just a tiny little prick. And then again, because lots of them are very small, um, it's like, you know, if if they get a sting um, on you, it doesn't hurt. The other thing that... They don't die when they sting you because with with honeybees, when the females sting you, their sting actually um, comes out of their abdomen and they die. But with the native bees, that doesn't happen, so it's much nicer for you. 
and the bee, and I also believe that because when the honeybees sing to you, all their lifetime supply of venom goes into you, whereas with native bees, it's only a little bit. And where would you find native bees? Are they just, you know, something that you'd find in the bush or do a lot of species live in the city and we don't even realise? My study has been focusing on bees around the urbanised region of Perth, which is the capital city of Western Australia. And most people, when they think of like where bees live, they think it must be natural areas. And I'm showing that actually they do live around our cities, but there is a caveat there in that they do strongly rely on remnants of natural vegetation around the city. So Perth is quite special, and so I guess is most of Australia, in that we do have patches of native vegetation around our cities. It's not just a big concrete jungle. And these patches are really important, and so are like the verges where there are still native trees. And there are native bees all around the city. I've I've been surveying um, 14 sites for my research, and I've never done a survey where I haven't seen a native bee. So they are there. If we want to, I guess, promote native bees in our gardens um, and, you know, make sure they've got the type of plants and flowers um, so that they thrive, what would you recommend? They really need the native vegetation. So if there's a patch of bushland near where you live and there's talk about it being cleared, say no (laughs) because it's so important for them. And then trees that line your street, if you've got eucalypts, gum trees, bottle brushes, they're really good plants for native bees. Then for your own garden, those trees, if you have trees like that, that's really great. And also planting mainly native flowers, things like sandflowers and tryptamine and native pea plants. So is it just planting flowers or are there other things that we can do to promote native bees in our environment? For sure. So bees need flowers for food. They also need somewhere to nest. And that's where we can help them out as well. So some bees nest in the ground and we can help them out by making sure that there's patches of bare ground in our garden, so not all pavement or fake grass. And then other bees in nature, they nest in small cavities created by wood-boring beetles in trees. So we can help them out by retaining trees, including dead wood, but we can also help them out by making bee hotels. And this is quite simple. You just get a block of wood and drill holes in it or get some bamboo. And the dimensions are the important thing. So the dimensions of the holes need to be between 3 millimetres and 10 millimetres in diameter. And this is a problem when you see some in stores because they, they do sell bee hotels, but often they're not really designed with the bees in mind, unfortunately. You can learn more about bee hotels and the biology and types of bees that use them, as well as a big list of plants that the native bees like in a book that I've written called um, Bee Hotels for Native Bees, and you can find that on Facebook and ask me about that. It's available both as a hard copy and as an e-book. That's excellent. Kit, thank you so much for joining us on Lost in Science today. And if you um, would like to learn more about bee hotels, which I definitely do want to know more about. So the title of the book again was... Bee Hotels for Australian Bees. Kit, thanks so much again. 
Thanks for chatting. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. probably know that I'm a bit of a sci-fi fan and uh Oh really? Yeah, would you have picked that up from previous shows? I don't know. I've somehow got that impression, but yeah. um I mostly get that from your t-shirts that you wear. <laughs> yeah, well, that's fair enough. Um but I did grow up um watching Star Trek mm-hmm. in, in its various guises. I mean, that was, you know, uh, I didn't see it when it was first on TV. I'm old, but I'm not that old. Um but obviously the original show used to be shown on Weekend after yeah reruns and that reruns sort of thing yeah forever. yeah and then the films they made and the TV shows and all of that sort of stuff all of still going now there's a whole new series yep, yep. coming out um, but it was always a staple that the propulsion of the spacecraft was absolutely nothing like what we had on Earth in the 20th century, which is when I started watching it. They were all completely weird, you know, the warp drive and all that Mm. sort of stuff. And the impulse drive, I think, was the other thing they used. Yeah, the impulse drive. But, you know, interestingly, the ability to beam down to various planets um, was uh, came about from an inability of the producers to make landing a shuttlecraft look believable on their cheap budgets that they had at the time. Um, But the shuttles did eventually appear in the show and, you know, they would sort of pretend they would fly off in them and all those sorts of things. But the shuttles didn't make any... They didn't have rockets or anything like that. No, they were tiny, flimsy little things too. Yeah, yeah. So it looked like, you know, like just a shell of a a metal tin can that they used for filming or something like that. Um, But they do appear to glide around effortlessly through space and they could somehow fly through planetary atmospheres as well. So they obviously had some sort of amazing drives that didn't need any visible form of propulsion. Um, So, you know, it's science fiction, so we suspend our disbelief, uh, even if we can't suspend shuttlecraft in the air at this point. But uh, last year, a group of Star Trek fans, or at least one Star Trek fan who was the leader of the group of uh, engineers at MIT in the US, successfully flew a plane with no moving parts, that was a powered flight over a distance of 60 metres using what they call ionic flight, its other name being electro-aerodynamic thrust. So, hang on, is this like a is this like a black fly in your Chardonnay or a free ride when you've already paid? No, it is not ironic. Oh. It is ionic. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah. Isn't it ionic, don't mm. you think? Um, so... The principle of uh, ionic flight was, or ionic ionic thrust is what they also call it, um, was first discovered in the 1920s. So people were mucking around with electricity since they first discovered that you could zap things with it. Um, But they really didn't think anything of it. It was sort of a curiosity that when you had two electrodes, there would be a slight little wind that would move around. And that's a result of the electricity itself. So um, basically, when a high enough voltage is passed through a set of electrodes, they, uh, the electricity strips electrons from whatever particles are around it. So atoms and molecules in the air around it get, um, lose electrons to this electric charge that's in the air. Uh, and if you um, remove electrons from atoms and molecules, they get a positive charge. So they're then positively charged atoms and molecules. 
Now, if you've got a negative charge near them, those particles will move towards that negative charge. So you get a net motion towards this electrode. Now, so this is without this is without fully kind of getting a through call it a lightning bolt. Yeah, that's right. It's just it's just literally the um, the electricity passing through the electrode, right? That that causes this. Um, but like I'm saying, uh, a lightning bolt happens too, isn't it? When you like basically ionize the air and you get this plasma kind of. Well, thing. yeah, and it's, but yeah, there's no no plasma involved here. It's just the ionized um, particles in the okay. air. Yep. So um, so if you get a a mass of air moving in a certain mm-hmm. direction, if you move that air across a plane or a flat surface, you will create lift. And if the air is all moving in one direction, you create thrust. So that's basically all you need to get a plane to move. So um, this is what they did at MIT. They basically built a plane. It looks kind of like a glider, but it's got a uh, a sort of structure underneath the wing, which has a series of wires stretched across it uh, in the in the structure, and they are all connected up to a battery system to provide electricity through the wires. Um, and they also designed a lightweight power converter to get a high enough voltage. So the uh, the voltage they required to get this to work was forty thousand volts in a relatively light aircraft. So they had to get some other um, engineers to help them with that, to build something that was light enough to, yeah, produce, okay. the, to produce that kick, um, but still capable of converting that battery electricity into a high-voltage um, uh, current. So they got all of that. They packed it into a little plane. They made it as aerodynamic as possible, and then they launched it. Uh, in the uh, in the gymnasium, basically at MIT, it's quite a large uh, basketball stadium, um, and they got it to fly sixty meters, and they did that ten times, and they filmed it all with you know um, with non distorted cameras. So when you watch the the footage of it, it's actually moving past three cameras at once. Oh, okay. But the cameras are not distorted. So it looks like it's flying closer to the camera and then further away because the camera doesn't move to follow them or anything. It's interesting footage okay. if, you can, if you can find it. So for comparison, how far did the Wright brothers fly on their first flight? Well, look, not very far. You know, a couple of kilometres maybe. Oh, yeah. Um, so, this is, so this is not quite Wright brother level is what you're saying? It's not really, but it's, uh, it doesn't fly very far or very fast. It's quite a slow-moving uh, vehicle, but it is proof of concept that an ionic thrust aircraft can work. It can actually fly. Um, So the team was headed by Stephen Barrett, who's an associate professor of aeronautics and astronautics at MIT. He was the one who was inspired by Star Trek. So there's actually quite a lot of scientists who grew up watching sci-fi who are, you know, inspired to to, uh, create things. Um, Obviously, the field is now open to improvement on their design. He wants to get something where you can't see the uh, the means of propulsion, so that it's you know it doesn't look like. Basically, it does look like the Wright brothers plane from Kitty Hawk. Yeah, um, it looks like a sort of a biplane kind of contraption with wires, with wires everywhere, and you know, and it's very got a very small 
cockpit where the battery's sort of mounted in. Um, but otherwise, it looks very much like a regular plane as well. The obvious, uh, the um, the surface of the wings is pretty much standard. It looks like a a normal glider, like the kind that you would tow up into the sky using another plane and then release it. Um, but you know, improvements on the way it looks. Uh, it's a long way from a Star Trek shuttle. Um, but you know. In, in only a century, we went from Wright Brothers, Kitty Hawk flyers to, well, into space, got to the moon, uh, you know, got... Less uh, than a century. Yeah, got, got stealth fighters, yeah. um, you know, all sorts of amazing achievements in flight. So in 100 years' time, who knows what these kind of planes will be doing. But um, considering in the last, say, 10 years, the explosion of drone technology... Um, the idea of a super silent drone could be, you know, something we could look forward to. It'll at least be less annoying, less annoying yeah. than having those whirring, buzzing things flying around everywhere. Well, let's just hope they live long and prosper. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.